I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. I'd like to welcome back today's guest, New Mexico State University astronomer Vladimir Lyra, who was on Delving In on October 4th of 2020, when he talked about the astrophysics of space-time. Vladimir's current research focuses around high-end computer simulations of planet formation, both in our own solar system and beyond the exoplanets and their solar systems. In today's interview, we'll be focusing mainly on the theory of the Big Bang, black holes, and the possible implications of new observational data recently made available by the powerful James Webb Telescope. So Vladimir, welcome back to Delving In. Thank you, Seward. Glad to be here. So first of all, it's good to have you back and to be able to meet in person. Last time we had to meet online because it was in the thick of the pandemic before any vaccines. So I hope you and your family back in Brazil made it through COVID intact. Everyone's fine. Thank you for asking. I thought I'd throw in about Brazil because as we know, your first name Vladimir throws people <laughs> off. I, that is correct. Yeah, not Russia, not Ukraine, not Belarus, no, Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because the name is spelled with a, a W. Yeah. So at first when people hear, they think Russia. When they see it written, they think Poland maybe? No, <laughs> nowhere near Eastern Europe. And I remember your answer, how did you wind up with that name? And you said they like Russian names in Brazil. That's correct, yeah, yeah. In Brazil, there is this thing that they find Portuguese names boring. So at least during the, in those years, right, in that range of years when I was born, it was very common to name kids with international names. So. I had schoolmates named John, Pablo, uh, <laughs> Igor, <yeah>, Yuri. <laughs> so. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. yeah. So l let's start by talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, affectionately mm. referred to as JWST, right? Mm. What's special about its capabilities in comparison to the previous telescope, the Hubble? So what is different? What is the difference between JWST and, and, and Hubble? There are two main two main characteristics. First is the range of wavelengths, what type of light JWST is uh, sensitive at. Hubble operates mostly in optical wavelengths, the same light that we see, though it also operates in the near infrared. But JWST is primarily an infrared telescope, which is why it has also a different orbit than Hubble was, right? Hubble, Hubble was in low orbit around Earth, you may have seen in, in the news that JWST is in a completely different orbit, it's far out. It had to be put very far away from Earth because the Earth is a hot planet. So it, it shines like a very bright lamp in infrared. It's like trying to do astronomical observations in broad daylight. You mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to do that. So they needed to put the JWST as far away from Earth as it could be, while it's still not being too far, of course. And the other thing is the size. JWST is much, much bigger than, than Hubble. So the size of the mirror and the wavelength range that it sees. In fact, a, a better comparison wouldn't be JWST versus Hubble, but JWST versus Spitzer. Spitzer was a telescope that was launched in the early 2000s that was also an infrared telescope that was about the size of Hubble and did a lot of very interesting infrared observations. JWST is more the successor of Spitzer than of Hubble. So in other words, uh, if it were too low, it would have light pollution in the infrared range, which is weird to think about. We think about being in space that this, what kind of light pollution can there be in space? But in that range, I guess there is. Correct, yeah. And the reason is because infrared is essentially heat. There is not much 
pollution, there's not much light pollution in optical wavelengths because space, of course, is dark. Space is also dark in, in infrared, but Earth, being a, a hot planet, yeah. it, it shines, it peaks, it peak, the emission that it peaks is in, uh, in infrared wavelengths. Any surface, any body at a given temperature will emit in all wavelengths and all sorts of light. But there is one wavelength where it peaks. The sun mm. has its peak in what we call visible light, the light that we see. But the air in this room here peaks in infrared. Yeah, so the other thing that's so interesting is that, from what I understand, infrared is better at penetrating like space dust, things like that. And so it, it's able to see things True. more easily than in the visible range, right? Correct. Different wavelengths of life have different properties. They are blocked by different things and they penetrate through different things. So if you may see these interesting uh, videos online also how infrared light, if you have a, a, a night uh, view, something that, that can detect the infrared, it can see through some things but not see through other things. For instance, glass is transparent in optical wavelengths, the window here in this room, but it's opaque in infrared, which is why actually your car gets hot in the sun, because the sunlight that is optical can get in. Once it gets in, oh. it heats up the car. That heat is infrared and cannot go out because it's opaque. The same glass that lets the sunlight in is opaque to the infrared that the, the hot car is trying to re-radiate, so the temperature just goes up and up. I see, and that's why we don't put our dogs, well, hopefully, <laughs> in cars. <laughs> so the, the other thing that I guess special about the James Webb Space Telescope and, and its infrared capabilities and its size and being outside the, outside the Earth's atmosphere is its ability to see further into the past. Isn't that it's like the thing that's most exciting about it? Yes, that is indeed a very exciting thing about JWST because why is it that it can see further into the past? Because the universe, that's 13 billion years, 13.4-ish, and the speed of light is finite. So that means that the further back we see, further in the past. If the speed of light was instant, if it was infinite, then you would see everything in the same instant in time. But because it takes time for light to travel from one point to a, an, another point in space, we always see things as they were in the past. The distance between us here is like what, like one meter. So that's not much of a difference in time. So we don't usually notice that in everyday human interaction. And even the moon, we see the moon as it was one second ago, we see the sun as it was eight minutes ago, Pluto as it was a few hours ago. But when you're talking in the scale of galaxies, if something is one billion light years away, we are seeing it as it was one billion years ago. So the further back you see, the further back in time you also see in space and time. What JWST can do is that it's such a big telescope, the mirrors are so big that it sees fainter things. So for the same luminosity, if you see fainter, you're seeing further back, so also further back in time. So indeed, you can see further back in time than Spitzer could, than Hubble could. So theoretically, if you had a powerful enough telescope and you could instantaneously, which of course is not possible, but if you could instantaneously transport to something that's a million years ago, you could look at the Earth and observe what's going on and 
see the dinosaur. Dinosaurs were more further back than that, but see early early man and whatever was going on then. That is interesting. I remember thinking about that when I was a teenager. I was like, wow, if we could travel faster than light, and if we could just instantly transport ourselves a hundred million years to a point a hundred million year, one hundred million light years away. And if we had a telescope powerful enough to point it back to Earth, we would see Earth how it was during the time of the dinosaurs. And I think that's one of the theories of immortality is that everything is still happening. You just have to be far enough away to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the Big Bang. The, I guess that's been the prevailing theory for quite a few decades now about how the universe started. So what was it? How did it happen? And what's the evidence for it? So what is the evidence for the Big Bang? The overwhelming evidence for the Big Bang is, I would say, twofold. One is the fact that the universe is expanding. We can measure the rate of expansion of the universe. And if you reverse that expansion, if you could turn back the clock and run time backwards, just get the rate of expansion that you measure now and then turn back the clock. The universe then would be decreasing. And then if you turn back 14 billion years ago, we are all in the same point. The second thing is that once you do that, and then you say, what are the conditions? If we do that, if we make it, the universe is smaller in time, revert back in time, what will happen? The temperature of the universe would increase. The density of it, the universe would increase too. So the initial state would be a very hot and very dense state of the universe. And we observe that nowadays as afterglow of this very hot and dense state. That's the cosmic microwave background radiation. The cosmic microwave background radiation was emitted when the universe was first transparent. It was so dense that the, the photons, the particles of light could not run free. Eventually, when the universe cooled down enough, then the photons could decouple from matter and then could roam free. That happened when the universe was about 3,000 degrees hot. And the universe has been expanding since, and this has been cooling down. The theory says that then we should observe that as a background radiation filling up the whole of space at a temperature of about 3 degrees above absolute zero, and that's exactly what we see. The cosmic microwave background radiation and the expansion of the universe are two things that are the crown jewels in the theory of the Big Bang. Then there's also the, uh, the redshift, that uh, as things move away, the spectrum shifts to the red, right. which I guess is analogous to uh, sound becoming longer, right. lower sound as mm. something passes, and that's why you have an ambulance going right. it's, It drops in pitch. So similarly, the wavelengths drop in the increase in length. Correct, that's what I meant by the expansion of it the universe. That was actually the observation that showed, that proved that the universe is expanding. The way that we measure that is precisely by this mechanism that you mentioned, the redshift. What do we mean by that? It's that when, we, when you observe the nearby galaxies, from the light that we get from these galaxies, we can tell if they are moving away from us or if they are moving closer to us. That is this, this mechanism that you describe the Doppler shift. When you are approaching a source, 
say, a source of sound, the pitch goes up, right? As, as you said, the ambulance, when you hear it, the pitch goes up, right? And when you're going away from you, the pitch goes down. Because when you're approaching a source, the distance that the wave has to travel is smaller because the source is approaching you. So the distance between two peaks in the wave is shorter. For sound, that means that the pitch goes up. For light, that means that the wavelength is getting smaller, there's approaching the blue. Blue has a smaller wavelength than red. So if it's moving towards you, the wavelength gets shorter, gets blue. If it's moving away from you, the wavelength gets longer, it becomes red. That's why we say red shift. And then the, f the faster it's moving away from you, the redder it gets, right? Precisely. The closer is, the faster it's moving towards you, the bluer it gets. Mm -hmm. The faster it's moving away from you, the redder it gets. So when they were looking, when they were measuring the, the speeds by which galaxies were moving away from us, if the universe was not expanding, if it was the same everywhere, you would see the same amount of galaxies with red shifts and blue shifts. The same amount of galaxies moving towards you and the same amount of galaxies moving away from you. And it turned out that what was observed was that all the galaxies were moving away from us. That was a clear sign that there was something going on. They, the universe was doing something dynamical. It is not just static. And the next thing is that the further the galaxy was, if you could measure the distance by other means, the faster they were moving away from us. How do they measure the distance with other means? Because stars just look like a point of light, so you can't really Correct. just, you can't look at the dimension. Yes. So that was also a major discovery that was done in the beginning of the century. There are types of stars that we call standard candles. That means that you know how bright they are. And if you know how bright they are intrinsically, it's like having a 100 watt light bulb. You know that lamp is 100 watts. So no matter how far away it is, you, you know that's always how intrinsically bright they are. And if you can measure how dim they're looking, then that's a measurement of the distance. Okay, so the next question is how do you know how intrinsically bright they are? So that was a, a type of star that was a variable star. We call this the Cepheide variables. That was noticed, uh, there was a, an astronomer in the beginning of the century, Henrietta Leavitt, that noticed that there was a correlation between the period of variability and how bright those stars were. So you don't need to measure the intrinsic brightness, which you cannot do directly, but you can measure the period. So then by the period of variability, you can have a measurement of the intrinsic brightness. And therefore, if you see how dim they are, if you measure how dim they are in the intrinsic brightness by measuring the period, then you have a measurement of the distance. So the period is, there's a kind of pulsating aspect to stars different than twinkling. Twinkling, I think, is because of the atmosphere of the Earth. But there's something else that causes a kind of regular variation? Correct. There are, there are many stars in the sky that are variable stars. And that's definitely mm -hmm. not the twinkling that you see in the atmosphere. That twinkling that you see in the atmosphere, when you look at a star, is not an intrinsic variability of the star. It's just caused by the atmosphere 
the turbulence on Earth's uh, atmosphere. The same stars, if you look at them from space, they would not twinkle. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we see that also when you look at the planets. The planets, they do not twinkle. It's because they are so close that we actually see them extended. They're not just one single point of light. When you look at a star there so far, all that we're getting from it is one single ray. So it's very easy for that ray to bounce off the molecules on the atmosphere of the Earth. But this variability that the, these type of stars have is an intrinsic variability happening on the star. It's a pulsating period that the star has, and therefore that changes also the brightness. The atmosphere of, of that star is doing pulses, is going up and, and down, and that changes how much light uh, the star is giving out at any given time. And what causes the pulsing? <laughs> <laughs> one question leads to the next of one. Of course, yeah. So the CFA variability mechanism is linked to layers of ionization that are getting. So I, I don't want to get into too much jargon here, but the star generates its energy in the core. But the light that we see is, of course, on the atmosphere of the star. That, that, those photons that are generated in the core, they have to travel all the way from the core of the star all the way through the layers. And then once they reach the surface, they can escape. Those photons are not the same, of course. They are generated in the core, they travel a little, they get absorbed by the matter, the atoms inside the star. And then through a succession of absorption and re-emission and scattering events, they made out. They make their way through the star and then out through the visible surface that we see. And that takes about 10 million years for one, one million years for the case of the sun. A photon that is generated in the core of the sun takes about one million years to, to exit the sun. Amazing. Yes. It is not because we think of light is traveling so fast, but in this case, it's because it's getting absorbed and bounced around. Exactly, it's, it's trapped. It has to wiggle out. It has to wiggle <laughs> out exactly. And in that wiggling out, other stuff can happen. There is a layer close to the surface layer in this these types of star where the the absorption is so intense that all of the almost all of the light gets suppressed. And the fact that the light also carries momentum, which is how just they can transfer motion. Light also carries motion, so it can transfer motion to the atoms. So when these photons meet a layer that is very opaque, that absorbs them very strongly, what's going to happen is that they're going to transfer their motion to the atoms in that layer. So imagine a star is a layer like a, an onion, right, with layers, with shells. There is one shell there that is being hit very hard by the photons. So it makes them move out. Once they move out, they cool down, they fall back. Mm -hmm. So that leads to oscillations okay. inside the star. So I don't know if this is a perfect analogy, but when you have a candle, sometimes the candle pulsates because it's it's eating up the oxygen and then it's deprived of oxygen so the candle goes down but then when the candle go, goes down it gives time for the oxygen to come back to the candle and you see the candle flame pulsating mm. i don't know it's a little bit similar maybe interesting that's a good analogy we usually use that analogy for explaining why it start twinkles because that's the the turbulence the flame goes with the wind mm. the wind's blowing so the candle goes back and forth but the, what you're saying couldn't indeed i and you see it particularly if you have a number of candles all together and they all start Flickering. Flickering, yeah. yeah. It's usually due to the turbulence in the atmosphere, but okay. if you were to 
partially starve a candle of oxygen periodically, mm -hmm. you would definitely see also that right, the right. intensity of that candle would right. go up and down. Yeah. So I just want to go back and talk about the expansion, that whole concept, because it seems very hard for anyone's mind to absorb the idea that the universe can be finite. Also hard to absorb that the universe could be infinite. Either one of them is really hard to picture. And when we say the universe is expanding, and the usual question is expanding into what? <laughs> but there is no what, right? It, it's just space-time is a certain size, and then as it inflates, it gets bigger. The analogy that I usually hear is that if you can pretend that we live on a two-dimensional world, and all that exists is the surface of a bubble or a, some kind of globe or sphere, which is itself getting bigger. So the, it's getting bigger, and it's finite, and yet there's no boundary because it's spherical. It's, I think that's the best I think anyone could do to understanding it is by way of analogy. Yeah, our minds evolved on the surface of planet Earth. Indeed, from our experience, we cannot even see the curvature of the planet, right? So we have the impression that it's infinite. So you see plane everywhere that you look. But of course, that's just because we're too small to observe the curvature. But yeah. And we could also blame Euclid, right? Because <laughs> Euclid invented geometry and that's, uh, coordinates are at right angles to each other just the way we experience mm. it. And that's the way it is, right? Yep. No, not right. But then in, as we go to higher, I mean, to bigger dimensions, then you can observe the curvature of the planet. And indeed, the surface of the planet is a sphere, right? So you, uh, indeed, as you said, it is finite, but it's boundless. Because if you travel, constantly in one direction, you'd come back to the same point. The expansion of the universe, what is measured is that the distance between two given points increases in time. Our experience of space is three-dimensional. There are three space coordinates. A way to visualize it would be to, indeed, as you said, to postulate the existence of a fourth dimension, and therefore the volume of the universe is expanding on this on this fourth dimension. In the same way that if you were to inflate a balloon, the surface is expanding on, on, on this third dimension. But as I said, it is just an analogy because in astronomy, we are bound to what we can observe. If there is a fourth dimension that we cannot observe, then apart from leading to an analogy, we gain nothing by postulating its existence. Now, can the expansion travel at faster than the speed of light? Because it's not actual travel, it's the space-time itself expanding? So, when Einstein formulated the theory of relativity, one of the, the main drivers of the theory was to explain why is it that gravity seems to operate instantly when it cannot be the, the, the case. In Newton's theory, Matter attracts matter proportionally to the product of the masses and the inverse of the square of the distance. That means that if you change the distance of one, one body, the gravity that the other body feels would in instantly change. Relativity does away with that because nothing can propagate instantaneously. Things have to propagate at least with the speed of, of light. Information has to propagate maximally with the speed of light. However, if there is something that is not carrying information, that thing can propagate faster 
than light. So indeed, that is what happens. There are regions in, of space that are propagating faster than, than light, but we cannot get information from them. So as long as there is no information being carried, things can travel faster than, than light. Uh, what makes information so special, so to speak, <laughs> that it's immune from the restriction? Because that's cause and effect. Uh-huh, okay. Uh, that's yeah. what you mean by information. Infor yeah. Okay. It's something that would cause an effect. Because very strange things happen if information can propagate faster than the speed of light. That means that the effect could precede the cause. And, and, and this is a little, getting a little far afield, but with quantum entanglement, supposedly that can be instantaneous. And if you don't want to talk, that, that may be outside your area, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, quantum entanglement is, is an area that I'm definitely not an expert on. It, and that's but, really uh, crazy stuff. <laughs> Quantum entanglement is, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, I wouldn't, I, I, I would be a fish out of the water if I were okay, to, we'll, to we'll, answer we'll, questions. We'll leave that one behind, maybe I'll, okay. All right, so let's talk more about the Big Bang and the singularity of the initial point. I've heard it said that it's of infinite density. Now, is that hyperbole or is it really infinite or is it just as high as it can get? And that's always been very confusing to me. Classically, I, mean, I already used a, a jargon here. Why did I say classically? Because we divide the theories between classical theories and modern theories. Modern is anything that is quantum. And relativity, even though it's part of, of uh, modern physics, is still a classical theory. Because it does not take quantum effects into account. So we have two theories to explain the universe. One is quantum physics that describes the behavior of the universe in very small scales, of matter in very small scales. And then we have relativity that describes what happens when you have very strong gravitational fields. In isolation, they seem to be doing very well, right? You can, exp you can use a quantum theory to explain very small stuff and you can use a general relativity to explain very strong gravitational fields. But we don't have yet a theory to combine both of them. What happens when you have very small stuff with very strong gravitational fields? That is the frontier of physics nowadays. When do these two things meet? Black holes, Big Bang. Very small stuff, very strong gravitational fields. So the infinites that appear in general relativity it's because general relativity is a classical theory that doesn't take into account the quantum behavior of, of matter. So the hope, we don't know because we don't have the theory yet, is that once we find a way to combine gravity and quantum theory, maybe these infinites will go uh, away. But of course, that's just speculations. I see, because it, it, it's really hard to imagine something being actually infinite. It seems like it's impossible, but there's all sorts of things that seem impossible that are true. But in any case, it, at the time of the Big Bang, all of the matter or potential matter of the universe was in one tiny place. If it was infinitely small or the small of a grapefruit, whatever, but it's really tiny. <laughs> and somehow, for some reason, which we probably don't really understand, there was some kind of, I guess, quantum fluctuation and the Big Bang happened. But we don't, we can't really go back that far to understand why or how that initial moment happened. We can only look back, what, a million years into, from the beginning or something like that? A few hundred thousand? You can actually go back a few instants after the Big Bang. Oh. That, that's when that's when you would need the quantum gravity. But you can actually get very close to 
the Big Bang, and you can use general re relativity to explain what happened there and what we know of quantum physics also to explain what, what happened a few instants after the Big Bang. The scales down to which you would need the quantum gravity are indeed very small. We're talking about instants of time, like... 10 to the power minus 43 seconds, oh 10 goodness. to the power minus 33 meters. So we're talking about very small stuff and uh, tiny instants of time. And then, and then comes this notion that maybe time is quantized or maybe space uh, is quantized, that time will exist in very tiny flashes or space would exist in very tiny cubes. That's the realm of this elusive theory of quantum gravity that we don't have yet. But once you can smooth this out, then you can use general relativity and quantum physics as isolated theories. And that happened a few that happens already a few instances after the Big Bang. So the physics that we know But that's theoretical though. We can't actually can't, we haven't actually right, observed exactly. that. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. What you can observe is yeah we can observe it down to the cosmic microwave background. Beyond that, indeed, we right. have theories. And these theories that are proven to work in other situations, if you apply that, if you are certain that those equations hold, you can go back the clock. And the theories themselves have built in when they stop uh, working. So that's why we say that, yeah, you can go back, you can use it, these, these theories, a few instants after the Big Bang, but not beyond that. I think it's a good thing that people's heads don't actually explode when they <laughs> think about these things. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about black holes a little more. When were they first theorized? And Because they were theorized first and then discovered, right? That's correct. Einstein's theory yes. predicted? Yeah, true. Actually, black holes were theorized already in the 18th century. Oh, even before Einstein. Yes. Wow. Uh, plus, uh, imagine a body that is so heavy that not even light could escape from it. They already knew that light had a finite speed, and they thought, oh, what would happen if we have a body that is so massive that not even light could escape from it? So, uh, let me see if I, could, if I understand this correctly, because light doesn't have mass, so it wouldn't actually be attracted, in, but when you have something that's massive as a black hole, space is so bent that light would start to travel, but then bend back in on itself. Light doesn't have a rest mass, but it does have energy, and energy also gravitates. Oh. Yeah. So according to Einstein's energy-matter equivalence, everything gravitates. In fact, the source of gravity is not matter, it's energy. It's just that because energy, as through Einstein's famous equation, energy is equal to mc squared, you can have an equivalence between mass and energy. So the photon, a particle of light, does not have mass, but it still carries energy, and that energy gravitates. So then how was the black hole, black holes discovered, or what, how, what kind of evidence was sought after and then found? That's a, that's a great question, and indeed when you read the history of that, it is fantastic. If you follow the equations of general re relativity to, the, to its logical conclusion, there is no escape from the conclusion that a black hole should exist. Right? And in the 30s, in the 1930s, when astronomy started thinking about what would happen to a star, when it was first understood that stars are supported because of the pressure, that is generated by the nuclear fusion in the cores, right? You have what are called hydrostatic equilibrium. It's like a tug of war between the gravity of the star that's trying to pull it down 
that is trying to compactify it. And then the outward push of this pressure that is generated by the nuclear fusion in the core. So what happens when a star runs out of fuel? It will collapse. And astronomers are trying to understand what would happen. Would that collapse stop? And quantum mechanics, quantum physics was already being understood. So they knew that it would halt at some point when you pack stuff very close together. You would build another type of pressure because you cannot really put two, two bodies at the same point in space. And even that would stop working at some point. So if you keep adding mass, eventually gravity will win. So then you would have a black hole. That's what it was called. Eventually, you would get a point that is an object that is so dense and so small that from its surface, light could not escape. So that is the black hole. The evidence for the existence of black holes didn't come until much later when uh, compact sources of X-rays were found. What is that? You have a, a binary star. One of the stars evolved faster than the other one, one star only. That other one evolved, uh, exploded, and became a black hole. And then it's pulling matter from the other star. And that matter that is pulled is forming an accretion disk. And as this matter falls into the black hole, it heats up so much that it gives off X-rays. So mm. that, that Cygnus X1 was one of the, uh, the first uh, sources found. And due to the properties of this accretion disk and the orbits of the star around this unseen object, you can calculate the mass. And then you see that this object that is in the center pulling that matter into an accretion disk must be at about 10 times the mass of the sun. That, according to the theory, should be a black hole. If there is something that is 10 solar masses and you don't see... So you can't actually hole. see it, but you can see it eating. <laughs> so you see its effects, yeah. What you, the only things that we measure from black holes are properties that you can measure from the outside. Exactly, as you said, you can see it eating and you can see the orbits of right, right. stuff. The same thing happens in the center of the Milky Way too. We could deduce, and that was actually what was given the, was a study that was given the, the Nobel Prize recently. The they could measure the mass of the central black hole in our galaxy. Which every galaxy is assumed to have one. The more we see, yeah, we see that ev probably every galaxy has a central supermassive black hole. The one in the Milky Way is about four million solar masses. And the way that they could measure these masses by carefully following the orbits of stars that are in the center of the, the galaxy. So they orbit mm. this black hole. And then in the same way that we can measure the mass of the sun by following the orbits of the planets, you can follow the orbits of the stars around the black hole, and then you can deduce the mass. And so black holes come in various sizes. It sounds like you can have ones that are only 10 times the mass Correct. of the sun, ones that are millions. <laughs> Correct. It's, it's more variety than even in the species of dogs. That's true, because <laughs> mass is a continuum. And indeed, we talk about stellar mass black holes. Black holes that have about the mass of the sun. We talk about intermediate mass black holes, stuff that is about a thousand solar masses, and we talk about supermassive black holes. And there are also primordial black holes, which can be lightweight black holes, masses of asteroids. I see. So I have another question. If nothing escapes a black hole, supposedly, though I know there are some exceptions to that, and the universe started out in a sense as a giant black hole, why did everything escape? Why did it explode? Things did not escape. We could be living inside a black hole, for all we know. If you compute all the mass of the universe, 
and its radius, the universe can be a black hole. So if you want to know what is inside a black hole, maybe this is inside a, a black but hole. But this is so spacious. Indeed. <laughs> 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 That's different. Yeah. yeah. We cannot get any information of what is inside the black hole because by definition, nothing escapes it. It is not... When you say that there are some situations where things can escape a black hole, what is going on is not actually that it is escaping, is that you can extract mass from... A, a black hole. That was that was one of the first understood behaviors of how gravity and quantum mechanics could be combined. There was Hawking evaporation, like Hawking radiation, which is which was theorized by Stephen Hawking about how black holes evaporate. But that's not stuff that is exiting the black hole. It's something that is happening near the border of the black hole. That if you think, if you if you consider that there are pairs of particles that are being generated in the vacuum at any given time, if you generate a pair very close to the black hole, one of the particles can escape and another one goes in. But these particles are from the gravitational field of the black hole. So the particle that escapes. We see that as essentially being radiated away from the black hole. So if energy is escaping, that means that it must have been removed from the mass of the black hole. So slowly, a black hole would evaporate. Evaporate, just go poof, but it takes quite yes. a while. Let's talk more about the, that telescope because mm -hmm. it's been on YouTube videos at least. certainly raise more questions than they answer, which is why mm -hmm. you're here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that my understanding is that the... James Webb Telescope has looked very far into the past and has discovered galaxies that are very far away and yet don't look young. They look large. And that's created a kind of conundrum. What does that mean? And what does it mean for the Big Bang Theory? And what does it mean about the expansion of the universe? Oh, yeah, that is correct. And it was very surprising. JWST, by looking further back, I, and when I say further back, looking at dimmer things, JWST saw surprisingly massive galaxies at very early times, and nobody expected that. What we're talking about is galaxies that uh, they seem to be very bright. When I say massive galaxies, we mean bright stuff. Like we are seeing stuff that uh, seems to be very grown, very bright at very... Lots of stars. I wouldn't say lots of stars. I would say lots of light. Okay, it could be right? just a lot of big stars then. <laughs> yeah, and I am prefacing this because yeah, one of the solutions to that, one of the possible solutions that maybe it is not stars that we are seeing, but other forms of light. But yeah, right now, the stage that we are at, yeah, surprisingly massive gal. If the masses that we're measuring are correct, they're surprisingly massive at very early times. And why is that not expected? Because galaxies take time to grow. If we think, the way that we think we understand the galaxy formation and evolution, you need some time for galaxies to grow. And that space that dust are, are referred to as nurseries for the stars. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so galaxies, they merge with other galaxies to grow to the size. When I say surprisingly massive galaxies, we're talking galaxies that seem to be more massive than the Milky Way. A few hundred thousand years after the... Sorry, let me rephrase that. A galaxies more massive than the Milky Way, like a few million years after the, the Big Bang. And the Milky Way has existed for 10 billion years. It has had time to grow. It cannibalized other galaxies, like galaxies grow by, by merging. And not only that, there was an early study also that showed that if the masses are correct and the light that we see are stars, 
these galaxies must have converted all of their atoms into stars, which is preposterous. Mm. <laughs> that just cannot happen. Star formation is not that efficient. When we look at nearby galaxies, the rate of star formation that we see is that galaxies are converting about 10% of their atoms into stars, like 10 to 30%. The galaxies that we are seeing at that very early times with JWST, to explain the light that we see, they must be converting about from 85% to 100% of their atoms into stars. And you're saying that's really not plausible, right? Not plausible. So, so something is going on that we don't understand. Yes. So there is something off there, right? Uh, yeah. If so, what? So when we see these things, we have to examine the the, the assumptions that we are making to reach those conclusions. And if the assumptions still hold, then you question the theory. Yeah. First, you examine the data, make sure the data is what you think Correct. it is. Uh -huh. Yes, that's right. a good point indeed. Yeah. First, what is the first thing that you look? Is it the instrumental flaw? Is the data co correct? Once you make sure that this is fine and the conclusions are still nonsensical, you check then the, the underlying assumptions. And what are the, the assumptions in there? Is that the, the light that we see is coming from stars. So that's the first thing that one could check. There are four possible ways out of this. Once is that maybe star formation was different indeed at different times and star formation in the early universe indeed was that, that efficient. Now there is evidence that early stars were different than stars that we see nowadays. Because when you look at how stars form, we're talking about gravitational collapse. So have gas, right, in the universe, and this gas, there are clumps that are very massive, and they start to contract gravitationally. This, is, this depends on how well things radiate, how the gas can get rid of energy so that it can cool down, which facilitates the gravitational collapse. So there is evidence that early on, stars are actually much more massive than what they are now because gas just could not radiate that efficiently because there was no dust yet. Dust is produced by stars. So the first stars had to form without dust. Dust is a major catalyzer of star formation in the universe nowadays because it functions as a very efficient coolant. You can get rid of the energy, so it's easier to collapse. So can I just clarify what you mean by dust versus other forms of matter from which the earliest stars are made? All right, okay. So the universe is mostly hydrogen. Hydrogen, 75% of the universe. The other part is by and large helium. So helium and hydrogen are gas. That's what we call gas, right? Everything else just trace, trace elements, like 1% of the universe is something else than hydrogen and helium. So this is carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, iron, silicon. You, na you name it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Every, all of the, the other elements of the... And the other. heavier the element, the more likely it is to come from a second or third generation star, right? Because So, yeah. So all of the elements of the periodic table were cooked inside stars, right? And, and like all, almost all of them, there are only a few ones that were not. So it takes the universe a few million years to form a star, and then the star can cook hydrogen into these, these more massive elements. 
And, the, and what it called dust is when the star explodes and then ejects in its atmosphere and reaches into these elements. And in the cold of space, they can condense. And then you have silicate grains, carbonaceous grains. So these are dust. And these are very efficient on, on, on these dust grains are very efficient on getting starlight and heating up and then re-radiating that in, uh, as infrared, which can escape. You need that to form stars. At least you need it now, but you're saying that er earlier yeah. there were early stars that didn't have that. They still needed that to form small stars, stars like the mass of the sun. But if you didn't have dust to make this cooling efficient, all the, the cooling that you had was only for hydrogen and hyd the gas, right? And gas is a very poor coolant. It doesn't really radiate too well, so it cannot get rid of the energy. Therefore, the first stars probably were very massive because you, without this coolant, you needed a lot more mass to be able to co collapse gravitationally. So that is one of the first solutions to this problem of these early stars looking massive because we are assuming that the stars in those galaxies are the same as the stars that we see see. in the Milky Way and other galaxies nearby. Yeah, let me throw in another possible monkey wrench here. I've read that there's some theories, it's probably just very speculative, that it's possible that the laws of physics themselves have not always been the same. Ooh, yeah. And that's really mind-boggling, because I think we assume, first we assumed that space-time was like a grid and it was there before and it doesn't change, and then Einstein came along and said, no, it's actually stretchable like right, taffy. Yeah. And then the other assumption is that are the laws of physics are the laws of physics, that you right. don't play around. You don't play around with the laws of physics. But now <laughs> it turns out maybe they can change and evolve somehow. That is dangerous territory. And uh, indeed, that's one of the possibilities, right? That the laws of physics are different earlier. Our cosmology, the way that we understand that the universe may need updating, what we call the cosmological model may need updating. But we go back to the maximum by Carl Sagan that extraordinary claims and need extraordinary evidence. So the the idea that the laws of physics are different at different times in the universe and different uh, places in the universe is an extraordinary claim. And before we claim that, we need extraordinary evidence. Is the evidence, is this evidence extraordinary for that? What we have to examine what the evidence is. What we are seeing is galaxies that look extra luminous at early times. So we have to examine everything that is in there. So it may be other things too. First, yeah, maybe the types of stars that we're seeing there are different because the stars that we see in the Milky Way and nearby galaxies, most of the light is coming from the massive stars, but most of the mass is in the low mass stars. So then we derive from that a luminosity mass relationship that you measure the luminosity and you can tell the mass. But if these low mass stars are missing, these galaxies may be luminous but light. They can be lightweight galaxies mm -hmm. and yet incredibly luminous, right? Because of because of the low mass stars that contribute to most of the mass are just not there. Now the other possibility is that we're not even looking at stars. That's what I mentioned at first. Because the black hole in the center of that galaxy is accreting. And these stars are young, there is a lot uh, of gas there. So this black hole may be accreting very furiously. And as we, we mentioned earlier, we cannot see the black hole, but we can see the black hole eating. 
Okay. So there is a lot of light that's been given off by the accretion disk around the uh, black hole. I see. And one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the, in terms of evidence of black holes, is the recent collision between two black holes oh, that yeah. created gravitational waves. Oh, yeah. and, and there seems to have been pictures of the black holes, which I didn't think, or at least maybe you could see a picture of what's not there. There's the whole, a hole in your picture. If you see mm -hmm. a black surrounded by the light of stars, lots of little dots of stars, and then there's a portion of the sky that it's completely black, that's your black hole. So it's in a sense, it's a right. picture of what you can't see, mm. but it, it, the, you could see the glow of the collision, which is amazing. Yeah, what are you referring to are images on the event horizon of mm -hmm. the black hole that were done with the with another instrument, the event horizon telescope. And indeed what you're seeing there is the accretion disk around the black hole, is this glowing gas. Right. Yeah, it's this glowing gas that is orbiting the black hole, but you don't see the black hole itself, because at some point, light cannot uh, escape uh, anymore. So that is what you're saying. And indeed, there have been observations also, recent observations of collisions of uh, black holes. And how do we see that? We don't see the black holes themselves. As we were talking about earlier, you can only see the effects that the black hole has on the outside. But what you're seeing are what, what we call gravitational waves. That's what we, uh, we measure. These are ripples on the fabric of space-time. The black hole affects space around it, and if it is, and if you have another object around it too, so two black holes orbiting each other, you are not seeing the black holes themselves, but you are seeing how the effects that they have on space-time propagate. It's in, in the same way that we see light when you look at the quantum properties, when you accelerate two charges, the electromagnetic field around that charge propagates as ripples. And we, our eyes see these ripples as light. The gravitational field do the same thing, but then we call this gravitational waves. And this was from like a billion light years away or something like that? And just Yeah, some of them are indeed a billion, billion light and, years. And we can yes. actually see those ripples. It's amazing. Yeah. There was one that was indeed seven billion years away. Yeah, yeah, amazing, yeah. amazing. I also want to mention about or talk about the, I guess the current theory about the expansion of the universe is that the expansion is accelerating. And I guess the evidence for that is that the further away you look, the faster it's traveling. Mm -hmm. And what that Im implies is that the universe eventually will just become bigger and bigger and it'll just burn itself out and get cold. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of de a depressing vision of the end times of the universe. It's so far in the future, it's silly to be depressed about it. <laughs> but yet it's a vision that seems very horrible, just this lifeless, cold universe. Are we going to get rescued from that vision? Are there going to be other universes that get born elsewhere that we'll never know about? <laughs> I guess uh, the universe doesn't care about us, right? There is this anthropic idea that the universe has a purpose and this purpose is life and therefore us. I think that's us uh, projecting our vanity into a, a purpose for the universe. But yeah. yeah, but there's also, I think, an intuitive appeal to think that not just life, but the existence goes on and existence it's really mind-boggling to think the existence popped into existence mm. with the big bang mm. and then it burns itself out and then it just runs cold and that's that it, if, it doesn't it's not intuitive right. yeah but if the if you assume that the purpose of the universe would be to harbor life when you look at the volume of the fraction of the volume of the universe that can actually host life in the mm -hmm. way that we understand it we're talking about a very tiny infinitesimal fraction of the universe that can actually 
Don't judge the worth of something by its size. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about a very small fraction of the universe capable of hosting life. Even on Earth, we see here, we have what? Life can, for all, can only exist in a very small thickness between the crust and the, the atmosphere. We're talking about, what, maybe 20 kilometers mm -hmm. where you reach the mantle and it's just yeah, molten rock and yeah, then but, space. Yeah, but what 20 right? kilometers those are, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so we are essentially uh, denizens of the magma vacuum interface. Okay. Yeah, the volume of the universe that can host life as we understand it is extremely small. So that would be a very inefficient... So are you trying to say that if you want to humble yourself, you should study astronomy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but what I was going to say that, indeed, that's what we understand from our cosmological model now is that, yeah, the universe is dominated by this expansion and this expansion, well, by this accelerated expansion, right, um, by dark energy. And if you take this to its, to its logical conclusion, the, the mathematical form of this, it indeed implies uh, eternal exponential expansion of the universe. So the universe will just keep growing, will just keep expanding faster and faster with no bounds. It's a, a boundless growth. Right. Infinite size, eventually. Uh, that's, no the that's the nature of exponential growth. That also highlights the danger of extrapolation. Uh -huh. yeah. We are extrapolating what we know now to infinite time in the future. Yeah, yeah, you probably shouldn't to make bets on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. There are, there are much that we don't know about dark energy. All that we know about the dark energy is one observation, the, the acceleration of the universe. And in fact, there is something that is going on in cosmology, even before JWST, which is called the Hubble tension. The Hubble tension is a mismatch between the measurement of the rate of expansion that we derive from nearby galaxies by measuring the rate of expansion from nearby galaxies and by measuring the rate of expansion by the cosmic microwave background. So you have two values that are incompatible with each other that wasn't apparent in the earlier measurements because the errors in the earlier measurements, the uncertainties were too big. But now that the measurements have been refined, the difference between the value of the rate of expansion measured at present and the, and the rate of expansion measured from earlier times in the earlier universe is beyond statistical doubt. So that is a tension that is not being re resolved yet. And some speculations is that maybe dark energy operated differently in the mm -hmm. earlier universe than mm -hmm. it does now. Anyway, Vlad, I want to thank you for coming on to Delving In. This has been very interesting, very stimulating, and clearly one way to, not, to make sure that you don't get bored with life is to study astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hope we've been able to communicate that to our audience. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thanks for having me here. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.